0: Hey everyone, it's Elle. Before we start this week's episode, I've got a favor to ask. We've posted a link to a survey in the show description. This is our very first season of The Walk-In and we'd love to get feedback from you on what you're liking, what we could do better, and all that good stuff. It only takes a few minutes, so tell us what you think. And if you do, you'll get a 20% off coupon to the America's Test Kitchen online store. It's good for any cookbook, magazine, or digital download. So help us out and get 20% off. Now, on to the show. Every restaurant cook knows that the walk-in refrigerator is where you go when you need a moment to cry to confide in a friend or to collect your composure it's the place where the pressure to appear in control falls away where you're allowed to feel your feelings and get real about the hard stuff from america's test kitchen i am el simone scott and this is the walk-in
1: hey you it's me mashama pick up Are you there? I know you're there. We're all home. We're in the middle of a pandemic. I got something juicy to tell you. Call me back, okay? All right, I'll just wait to talk to you when we're in the
0: walk-in. All right, bye. Today, Mashama Bailey is stepping into the walk-in with me, and I am so excited. Mashama is a huge hero of mine in the culinary world. She's the award-winning chef and founding partner of The Grey, a restaurant in Savannah, Georgia. The restaurant occupies an old Greyhound bus station that was segregated during the Jim Crow era. Now, it's a fine dining restaurant helmed by a Black female chef. Mashama was born in New York, but spent part of her childhood in Savannah, Georgia. After a brief stint in social work after college, Mashama decided to give cooking a serious shot. She eventually landed at Prune on the Lower East Side and worked alongside friend and mentor Gabrielle Hamilton. After several years at Prune, Mashama was thinking about her next move. That's when Gabrielle was approached by entrepreneur John O. Morisano. John O., as he goes by, was looking for a chef and partner to open a restaurant in Savannah. Gabrielle brought the opportunity to Mashama. It felt like fate was pulling Mashama back to the South. So she took a leap of faith and opened the grave with Jono in 2014. Since then, Mashama has won awards and been profiled by Chef's Table on Netflix. She's a famous chef now. But in many ways, she's still growing into her role as a big deal food star. It's time to hear the full story. Let's step into the walk-in with Mashama. Also... This conversation took place remotely. So please forgive some of the audio quality throughout. Mashama Bailey, thank you so much for coming into the walk-in with me. How are you today? I am great, Elle. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. It's definitely my pleasure. Well, we have not seen each other face-to-face in quite some time. Probably, I think, last year's um, Philadelphia Chefs Conference, which was also the first time we met in person. And I probably watched your Chefs Table episode maybe a month or so before Philadelphia Chefs Conference. Mm-hmm. And I'm a pretty solid to the core person. So for me to watch something and it actually make me cry a little bit, was is that's a big deal. That's a big deal. Oh,
1: man, that's so sweet. A solid to the core person. What are you, made of stone?
0: Absolutely.
1: <laughs> Not
0: me. I'm made of like marshmallows. Like I got everything. But that makes all the sense because yeah. you're a Cancer. My mm-hmm. mother's a Cancer mm-hmm. and Cancers, they are very in touch with their emotions. Very, um, very. And with that being said, I'm going to read your horoscope today. Sometimes I start walking off with reading horoscopes if I feel like it's relevant. And I think today is one of those days. So for Monday, June 29th, a dilemma may arise or I have arisen already and you may be struggling with what to do about it. Even though this may be something you've been hoping for, Moon Child, it also poses a problem. If you can't solve that problem, the thing you wish for will be void anyway. You have to decide what to do. Is this the right time to accept an offer that is being made to you? Or will you be better off waiting for a better time? Mm. Don't dwell on it to the point of mental exhaustion. The answer should become apparent. Watch for it. So I don't mm. know if that resonates for you, but there you have it. That's your horoscope for today.
1: Thank you. I've been wondering if I should invite the exterminator over today. So I guess I
0: should. (laughs) (laughs) I think the decision has been made. No need to toil over it any longer. Do it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, it's Savannah. It's the summer. The
1: freaking cockroaches, they love to come inside when it gets hot outside. It's crazy here. I can't walk in my house. I don't have a screen door. I just bought a home about a year and a half ago. Oh, congratulations. Thank you so much. I'm very, very proud of it. It's the most intimidating thing I've ever done, but it's also the most settling thing. I don't think I've been settled this settled in a long time. So I think for me and the type of person that I am, buying a home and having a sense of security, I was needing that. Mm -hmm. I was needing that more than I knew. I didn't even know it was something that I needed. And when I did it, I'm sort of on sure footing, you know, like I'm way more confident in um, certain decisions that I make. But I can't seem to walk into this house without a fly or a moth (laughs) (laughs) or a spider coming in here with me. I'm like, I wake up in the morning, I'm like, where did this I didn't even leave the house. Where did this fly come from? So, the south, Savannah in particular, being on the coast, like it's beautiful. The marshes and and the water mm-hmm. and the the oak trees and the magnolias and
0: but everything is living here. Like everything is living. Everything. You <laughs> said so we're calling the exterminator. Decision has made, horoscope has spoken. <laughs> We're going to put an end to this once and for all. Yeah. I think it's very interesting that as a person who has opened a restaurant, you said that buying a house is intimidating.
1: Yeah, that sounds crazy, right? But moving to Savannah, I just kind of jumped into the deep end of the pool. Mm-hmm. I met my business partner. We got along well enough for me to just take a chance on this opportunity, which was and is exhausting. It's in a, exhausting in a different way now during COVID-19 than it's been and since the very beginning. It's almost like when we reopen, we'll, re, we'll be reopening a whole new restaurant again, right? So mm-hmm. it's, it's weird. But I guess we've been there before, so we know what to expect. And I think for me, <laughs> moving to a city that I hadn't lived in for years and years and years and opening up a restaurant was exciting and scary, but I just believed the whole time that I was going to be okay. The living part became very important because I had been down here since 2014 Mm -hmm. and I moved into this house that was sort of like a VRBO or it was like a furnished two bedroom house And I moved in there just initially, just to kind of get my footing here in Savannah and figure out where I want to live. And I was supposed to live there for a year, and I ended up living there for a few months. Mm -hmm. Then I moved to another place. But to make a long story short, I've moved five times in Savannah before I bought my house. Five. So that's pretty much like five times in
0: five years.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so I think when I got here, I was like, oh, thank God I can rest, right? Like yeah. I don't have to go anywhere. Where for the last five years, I've been sort of like up and moving and up and leaving and and spending a lot of money. I don't know how people move that much. Like I know people who move all the time and I don't see how they can afford it.
0: Yeah. I'm one of those people.
1: I feel like every time I move, mm-hmm. it set me back. Like, thousands of
0: dollars <laughs> it does it does but some of us is just the thrill of doing something different I'm a Sagittarius commitment to certain things it's not my strong suit you know yeah, like okay. I want to see something new I want to feel something new yeah. but like you I think I am getting to a point where I'm ready to feel a little bit more grounded like so I get that FIFO first in first out so Mashama. You're very versed in the kitchen, obviously. It's what you do. You know what FIFO stands for, right? Mm -hmm. Tell me. First in, first out. Exactly. So with that being said and known, I would love for you to tell me a little bit about who Mashama is and was. What was your life like in New York? Did you move around a lot when you lived in New York? Were you living that quintessential New York, you know, 20-something, 30-something life? Tell me about that time. What was that like?
1: I feel like I thought I was living a very quintessential New York life, but I also lived in the suburbs the whole time I lived there. I grew up in St. Albans and Queens village growing up and going through like junior high school and high school and stuff like that. And so when I moved out, when I got home from college and I moved out on my own, I lived in Brooklyn for a while and I got this house through this like cool apartment in East New York, Brooklyn. I worked in East New York. And this is before I started cooking. I was working at a group home there and I loved it. I loved living there independent. I was like early twenties, mid twenties. And it was great. Traveled, hung out all the time, bars. And I could afford to, cause I had like this kind of, I was living in affordable housing. Mm-hmm. So it was easy for me to not make a lot of money, but still sort of like hustle, right? right. And in 24, 25, you're figuring out what your hustle is. And back then, I wanted to do everything. I wanted <laughs> to write. I wanted to be a, a slam poetry artist. I wanted to, I just wanted to do everything. And so I kind of fell into cooking during that time. And it was perfect for me because I was living in this apartment where I was paying a little bit of money to live, and I had to go back to school in order to cook. And so I was able to afford to do that. And entering the business, you're making pennies. So I was still able to be
0: independent and not have a roommate and live on my own. Before you go too far, though, I want to ask you a little bit more about your job in social work. Did you know that I also was a social worker? No, no. I actually did it for about seven years. I ran a women's shelter on the Lower East Side of New York. Nice. That was my very last job before I came to New York to go to culinary school and had applied to what was FCI at the time, right? French Culinary Institute. And I went in there. um, I had like a little scholarship from WCR. I had an internship with the Urban League and I ran a a seniors program in Corona Queens. Mm -hmm. So we were kind of doing the same kind of work. But... Went to the school with this scholarship and they were like, oh, you need like thirty eight thousand more dollars. And I was like, oh, no, that's what I said, girl. Oh, no, (laughs) I just I still have a degree that I haven't even paid for yet. And I don't know about this, but definitely still working that last social work job and really feeling that burning itch and desire because I had worked on a cruise ship. And cooked, and I was like, this is what I want to do. But tell me about that time as a social worker. Like you said, you loved it, you were making decent money off of it, you could live in New York. But tell me about that job, that time in your life. What were you doing? And then tell me how cooking creeped in.
1: Both my parents were social workers in New York City. And that's part of the reason why I decided to become one because as I was going through college, I just wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. And I didn't really want to do liberal arts. So I went into psychology and my mom and dad basically helped me get jobs after I got out of college. So when I was living in New York, I was looking for work and my mom hooked me up with this family shelter. They had sort of like a daycare and a camp and an after-school center. So I was working in the daycare at first and I was like, I can't handle these kids. Not that that anything's wrong with these kids. I don't have the patience to figure out how to communicate effectively with these children. Mm -hmm. So I transferred out of sort of like the daycare part where the kids were under five years old. And then I went to the after school part where the kids were a little older. And it was a really overwhelming experience for me because I felt... Like I didn't have any resources to pull from. I was just kind of dangling out there on my own. Right. But during this time, we would have like office parties and stuff like that. And I would bring a covered dish, right? I would bring sweet potatoes or a roasted chicken or like a, a roasted vegetable or something like that to like an office party. I would cook rice and peas or something like that. Super simple.
0: I haven't heard anyone say covered dish sent my <laughs> grandmother oh that just warned me over like i knew exactly what that was you didn't even have to name those for me i know it cooked. yes covered <laughs> dish to the poplar banana pudding <laughs> yes so people would compliment me and
1: i feel like that was like the first time at that job that i was receiving like genuine compliments about something that i did and it <laughs> felt good Completely not work-related, but you'll take it. Exactly. Totally not work-related. So it felt good. So it was around the holidays, right before Christmas, and I expressed to a friend that I was interested in taking some culinary classes. And she referred me to a friend of hers who was doing some catering and said, well, maybe you should try working with this guy for a little bit. And I was always trying to look for extra money or a pickup, sort of like a side hustle or something like that. And so... I got on the phone with him and we talked briefly and I didn't get the job to work with him, but he told me about the cooking school that I went to. Mm -hmm. And he told me that there was a work study program that I can go to and I can earn my degree and I can earn my credits there. And it was a recreational school at the time. So I thought, huh, that's interesting if I thought seriously about cooking. and I've been watching like Great Chefs of the World and yeah. all these shows on PBS and that. Was we so- grew up on that, mm-hmm. right?
0: yeah Food Network, early days PBS exactly early days. and they were mm-hmm. really good. yeah and
1: so I was sort of like interested in the back of my head with it and you know get back to work after finding out this information.
0: And I got fired. I got fired from my position because... Wait, wait, wait. Don't go too far. This is perfect. You, This always happens, this natural transition. So this is a part of the podcast we call The Wall Slide.
2: The Wall Slide.
0: The wall slide is that moment when you go on the walk in and you completely just unravel, right? You got to go in here and let it all out. And so it Mm -hmm. seems like this was when you come to your job, you find out you're in love with cooking and then you get fired, girl.
1: Yeah. I wasn't good at it. I wasn't very good at it. I was in charge of this after school session and it was just not very well structured. And I had an assistant who was in school And he was always late. And it was just sort of like this kind of unorganized setting. Mm -hmm. And it was right before Christmas vacation. It was like December 23rd or something like that. And they were like, all right, we're going to have to let you go. So I asked them why. And they said that I just didn't have like the necessary leadership skills to run this program. Mm. And... I could go into like all these other reasons why I failed at that job. There was a lack of mentorship happening in that job. There was no one that I could sort of turn and talk to. And the one person that had experience, he was there in the very beginning of it. Then he was no longer there. He kind of transferred back to the main office. And so the director was opening up another shelter. So it was just sort of like, They needed someone in that position that could ride solo. And I wasn't capable of doing that.
0: Or maybe somebody who just had a passion for it, right? It it didn't even seem like it was your passion. It was your job.
1: It was so intimidating to me because I was just working with these kids that were way more street smarter than I was. And I just didn't know how to kind of engage with them in a way that I felt comfortable and they felt comfortable and i just didn't feel like i was giving them anything that they didn't have already so i just didn't bring any passion to it and i started to ignore the cracks in it in the things that weren't right about it and kind of hide those cracks and kind of move on and when you do that no matter what it is you it eventually breaks right there's yeah. enough pressure to put on that particular point it breaks and for me it didn't take very long to break and I looked into that culinary school that this person was telling me about and I started taking work-study classes there mm-hmm. and the rest is history I started doing events started picking up extra money and I started cooking professionally I started going to the city every day and you start to pick up on that energy and you start to pick up on all those flavors, right? Yeah. And all, of, all of, you just
0: see a whole different world. We didn't talk about opening the grave. So let's, let's kind of go back a little bit. You met Jono through Gabrielle. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can talk to us a little bit about Prune. Mm -hmm. And then the moments that led up to your conversation with Jono, and then you even considering going back south.
1: Prune was really, um, it was way more important than I thought it was going to be for me. I really submersed myself into that boys club kind of kitchen Mm -hmm. All the kitchens I worked in leading up to Prune were all male-dominated kitchens. And even one of my chefs, this is like before Me Too, way before Me Too, one of my chefs was called out for sexual harassment. He was just this kind of egotistical 30-year-old guy from like Southern California. And he had this executive chef position and was loving life, right? And he was kind of a little bit of a jerk, but I worked for him. I worked for him for two years and I did that because I thought that that's what you needed to do in order to get to the next step in your career, the next phase in your career, sure. which for me, I knew I wanted to open up a restaurant and I knew I wanted to be trained in quote unquote, these classical techniques and working in these kitchens it was like that path to get it or one of the fastest paths to get it, get there. Right. Right. And so I was working for this guy and I just was ready to go. Mm -hmm. While I was looking, I mentioned to a friend that I wanted something different. And he told me that a line cook was leaving prune and I should apply there. So I just kind of typed Gabrielle a note and I said, Hey, I want to work there. Prune's been on my radar for brunch and just for the way that she cooked. I remember reading an article about her when I was in cooking school about her Sunday suppers and how she would just go through the walk-in and basically cook dinner and clean out the walk-in. So the menu was never planned on Sunday. She would just kind of make this food and you would just go there and you would eat what was served you. And I thought that was really clever and inspiring. And I thought it was exactly the type of environment that I wanted for myself one day. And so all my kind of roads ended up leading there. So I ended up trailing there and I loved it. I thought the camaraderie was great. And it was like going to someone's living room. It was small enough. Mm -hmm. All the
0: food had perspective. Mm -hmm. I think that's really... What does that mean, the food had perspective? Tell me what that means for you.
1: For me, it meant that it all went together. It Mm -hmm. all made sense and it all came from a real place. Mm. And a lot of times when we cook, we want to reinvent things and we want to change history by changing ingredients in a dish, right? And change the course of that dish. Yeah. And she never did that. She just kept it really authentic. And there was always a place that it came from. And It always either came from, were inspired by... The Mediterranean, or it was inspired by the South, or it was inspired by quintessential American cuisine. It was, her mother was French. So you can see a lot of that influence. Her husband was Italian and she was really close to his mother. So you can see that influence there, but it all spoke to her personality and it all had an origin. Yeah. So I thought that was great. And I wanted to learn more and it was all simple. It wasn't technically difficult, but it was, you had to nail the techniques. Mm -hmm. It was technique driven, but it wasn't technically difficult, which I thought was really cool because I had been cooking food before the techniques to learn the techniques but it was just so repetitive right yeah. and it wasn't a lot of change it was sort of the same techniques over and over and over again and i wasn't given like any perspective behind why i was cooking this food or why it was important for the acid to be high on this sauce or the and the char to be high on this vegetable in mm-hmm. order for them to marry together. Like there wasn't any explanation. It was just sort of like make this one dish or make this one ingredient. But wasn't a lot of investment into why those things went together well. And with her, she was constantly doing things that went together well and explaining that to you and why, um, why you should be interested in that.
0: Intentional cooking and teaching. Yeah, that definitely changes the experience for the cook. It changed
1: it for me because my world opened
0: up, right? Mm -hmm. It was more about the people and the
1: ingredients than it was about the ingredients that serve and feed the people, right? It was more about the origin of the food. And so she would also let us cook family meal and she put these expectations on the cooks with family meal that forced you to cook from someplace. Like if you're going to cook Mediterranean food, then you should talk to your co-workers and you should make a meal that reflects that right so it's like one person's not going to make indian rice and then burgers and then you know what i mean like we all kind of like cook this cohesive meal together yeah which it was very miyagi it was very karate kid it was Mm -hmm. very like You're going to cook these meals together and I want them to mean something. And she never really said that flat out, but it was definitely in the rumor mill. It was definitely a contest, right? Right. You stepped up to the challenge in that. And
0: Uh Gabrielle was giving it wax on, wax off.
1: Seriously, I think she was. Yes. <laughs> and so I think in those moments when you're working with people and you're cooking like that and you're using ingredients like anchovies and, and orange blossom water and rose water and those ingredients that are really strong, but you need to use them with intention in order for them to really resonate with people, you start to think a lot more about why you're doing what you're doing. Sure. And so when it was time for me to leave, I was just ready to go. I've been there for three and a half years almost.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I loved it. I was a sous chef there. I
0: was respected there. I had a good time. So why was it time to leave? Like what? Well, it sounded like it was a good situation. What was happening in your life? I wanted my own thing. Mm-hmm. I
1: wanted my own kitchen. Mm-hmm. I did not want to work for anyone else. Not like... I didn't want to work for Gabrielle or anything like that. I just felt like I wanted to see something new. And I knew if I were to go back into the field, I would just end up back in kitchens very much like the ones that I left before I got to prune.
0: There was no other place to go but forward. And it was just that time.
1: Yeah, it was just mm-hmm. that time. Then in the midst of all that, Gabrielle meets Jono And tells Jono about me. And then she just introduces us. And she didn't know him from Adam. And she just thought that he was just kind of some crazy guy who didn't really know anything about the industry or anything like that. And was like, all right, he's looking for a chef. And I think that probably time for you to move on. I have nothing else to offer you, right? There's Mm -hmm. nothing more here for you to do. Right. You're welcome to stay, but here's an opportunity that you can check out. How did you feel? Like, did that sting a little? You know, I agree with her. I I agreed that it was time to look into other options. And I think Mm -hmm. that's probably why I took it so seriously. I don't feel like she recommended it. She just was like, okay, this guy is asking about this, asking for someone who is like you, right? Mm -hmm. You are ready. So why don't you... Talk to them. See what it can become. Yeah. that's was the decision-making behind me moving to Savannah.
0: Nuku makes high-quality cookware and bakeware for home chefs. And the products are so good, even their own employees can't get enough. Here's Jean Horvath, the Vice President of Custom and Specialty Products, raving about her four-quart stock pot. The one piece that I really love is our four-quart stock pot. It's perfect for so many things, soups, pastas, sauces, and it's not too big and it's not too small. When I make my holiday cream pies, this gives me perfect results every single time. For perfect cream pies and more, grab your own Nuku. Nuku cookware and bakeware is available on Wayfair and at select specialty retailers and cooking schools. Through the month of October, enjoy a special promo when you visit nuku.com and enter promo code KITCHEN at checkout for a 35% savings off their stockpots. That's NUCU.com, promo code Kitchen. I started out as a social worker. And like so many other people in this industry, I decided later in life that I wanted to pursue my culinary dreams. The Auguste Escoffier School of Culinary Arts is made for people like us. Their programs are flexible enough for all kinds of students. From the career changer, like me, to the experienced industry professional looking to add new skills. With their curriculum, you get it all. The classic culinary training, plus the business foundation to take you to the next level. Check out Escoffier.edu to learn more. That's E-S-C-O-F-F-I-E-R.edu. What were the magic words that Jono said to you that when you knew, like, okay, this is the move, this is it for sure? Like, was there some words that he said that kind of confirmed for you that you were on the right track? for you to know that he was the person to pursue this endeavor with? Well, there are a few things.
1: I came down to visit Savannah and we were walking through the park and he was asking if I thought that I could be inspired by living here or if I needed to like go back to New York City and visit or travel. Mm-hmm. And he sort of very early on understood that there needed to be a level of travel for creativity, sure. and I thought that that was interesting because I've never been in a situation like this before. I've never been in a situation where I was an executive chef. I've never been in a situation where I had to move. and for someone to be taking in consideration how I was going to be creative, that's a big deal. And what a creative person may or may not need and be open to having that conversation, I thought was really interesting. I was like, huh, This is kind of cool. Right. Yeah. Then he was talking about equity, building equity in the business. Right. Saying, "Okay, I know that I'm paying you a salary to be this executive chef, but in X amount of time you can acquire ownership in this business. So that was also very interesting because, you know, it wasn't just like sweat equity, but there's a real accountability for something like that, right? So if you're working with someone that you trust, there's some accountability to be held for investing your creative energy in order to acquire equity in a business. Absolutely. So that was interesting
0: too. Because creative energy as a chef is about 90% of your energy. (laughs) It's 90%.
1: (laughs) You know,
0: so that's a pretty large amount of sweat equity,
1: actually. It's a a large amount of sweat equity, right? So I knew that this person was speaking about not only building a career, but also building wealth. Yes. So how does that apply to me? Is that something that I want? Is that something that I've thought about? And it is. It's always been something that I kind of knew. I knew I didn't want to work by myself, but I knew I wanted to work for myself. I knew that I wanted to move to the South, but I wasn't sure if it was going to be in Savannah or not. And Al, I didn't tell you, but this time in my life, my parents had already relocated. They relocated like right when I started cooking in like 2001. So my parents were already in the area. So it's not like I didn't want to move South. So that was sort of a plus. Equity was a plus. And creative control was a plus, right? Then I was like, what's the liability if I fail? Like, what's the risk factor here if mm-hmm. I fail? What's going to happen? And when will I know?
0: <laughs> when will I know I failed? When, yeah. <laughs>
1: when will I, I know I failed? But I never really thought about failing. I just thought about doing it. I never thought about failing at it. I thought about, becoming stronger in it. Like it's interesting. There's a certain amount of, um, growth that has to happen when you are working in a situation when someone has financial control. Yeah. And what I mean by growing in that is understanding your value and your worth versus that financial control. I mean, it's not that it's controlling, but, If one person has the money and one person has the talent, like how do you split the dividends?
0: You're reading my mind because that is exactly what I wanted to know. Like, how does that relationship form? Because I would imagine it will require a certain amount of trust that feels like it's almost impossible to develop with someone you don't even really know. You know, and a lot of the first few years was about constantly trusting
1: and not being afraid to communicate about finance, not being afraid to communicate about money and investments, because everything we've earned, we've reinvested back into the business. Right. So it's not like we're not taking any profits. Off the top, we're reinvesting back into the gray market. We're investing in our staff. We're giving bonuses and that kind of thing. Having that type of control is almost foreign Mm -hmm. because you are really the creative person. So when you're talking about purchasing real estate and you're talking about consultants or a PR team or reinvesting in the business, like I had to grow into those conversations. Yeah. It's just so layered. It's just so much. Because now it's like you just don't have a restaurant. Now you're building a company.
0: Yeah. And you're responsible for the lives of people. hmm Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which really changes the game, you know? Yeah. It's so, parenthood. You're providing a house and food and money <laughs> for people other than yourself. And for me,
1: there was a lot of personal growth. There's a lot of uh, confidence that I had to kind of learn in myself and get comfortable with myself in order to communicate what I want and what I don't want Mm -hmm. as a business partner. I had to grow as a leader, understand how to just talk to people, right?
0: Yes. I remember when we first met and you told this story that really stuck with me and I actually still share it with people. And you were talking Mm -hmm. about the first time you actually popped off on somebody (laughs) on the line in the restaurant and you threw something, but you weren't throwing it at that person, mm. but it just like the throw went out of control and the the thing went out of control that you threw.
1: I had tasting spoon in my <laughs> hand and a Sharpie in the other hand. And the Sharpie was to mark the tickets and the tasting spoon was to taste what was supposed to go out. And that's kind of what pissed me off, was the fact that it wasn't right. There's this one particular guy that just What Like, he's so capable, but he doesn't want it. Like, he refuses to give over to the culinary gods. Yes. He just refuses, but he's (laughs) capable. Like, he's quick, he's tight, and he has all the things that could make an excellent chef. But he refuses to give over to it, and he'll put up crap. Mm -hmm. And so this particular moment, it was like, in the heat of service, we had already been down this road. We had discussed this dish several times and I just was like, what the f-? And then I kind of like the gasket went off and it just kept going and going. I was just like, I can't believe that you don't get this by now. You're better than this. Like what the f-? And I just kept going, going, going. And then the next thing I know, I'm just like talking with my hands, but there were things in my hand <laughs> and it went flying. And it didn't hit them. It was two line cooks in particular standing next together. And one person was new on the station. And the other person that I was really pissed off about was like letting him kind of go down and not taking any, any accountability for his own actions. So I was just like so livid. But I threw these objects at these people. But right after service, I apologized. And I just was like, I can't believe I did that. Like, I, that's totally out of control. But the other line cook who was sort of struggling that night was pissed. It was a very, very humbling moment for me because this guy had come in as a dishwasher and at this particular night he was working saute. Like we had invested so much time and energy in him. And I just felt like I really blew it. And it was just a real humbling moment in how I handle and work with people because I just felt like I was totally out of line. I was just so disrespectful. And that's year four. (laughs) That was year four. So, I mean, I had to learn. I was still learning how to deal with my own yeah. My own sort of frustrations when it comes to like the amount of energy and how you invest and the sweat and tears like this business is like no other. And I really feel like we lose our temper and we can't take it back. I was intimidated when I was a cook. I was older. I had already graduated college I didn't know if I was going to be good at it. I didn't know if I was going to have the stamina for it. I wasn't willing to just kind of go into cooking and not really give it my all. So I just kind of kept my head down and my mouth shut. And I just wanted people to teach me what they knew. So and like I said, it wasn't until Prune where there was this light that sort of shined on me and on everyone there that was a very individual light. And I think that was what she is very good at doing. She's very good at shining individual lights on the people that come through the door who want to
0: absorb what she has to offer. Uh, I wish I had run into something like that in my New York days. I didn't feel very confident. I don't
1: think I was confident until two years in, three years in at Prune where I was like, okay, I got this. I know how to move in the kitchen. I know how to season. I know how to cook. But there wasn't a confidence there until someone actually started to fill you with the information you needed to understand food a little bit better and not just kind of go through the motions. Yeah, As a cook, right? Not as a sous chef, not as a chef de cuisine, but as a cook, someone who's like giving you theory and practice at the same time. And in a lot of places, you don't get that. That's very true. You really don't. You just herd like cattle into these places in the strong survive. And those are the people who get the information. And the other ones are just kind of like
0: fighting for the scraps that's left over. Well, speaking of that, then tell me, I heard that when you were building the menu for the gray, you sent it to Gabrielle for some input. How did that go?
1: She said the menu was all over the place. (laughs) And it was because I was like, you know, ripping off stuff from prune. I was trying to be Southern and trying to be Italian because we had just come from this Italy trip. So it didn't have any perspective or point of view. And that's what I heard her say. (laughs) 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 I heard her say it sucked, but I don't know if she actually used those words, but she just gave me some advice. And and it was sort of like the advice that she's been giving me throughout my relationship with her is just kind of stay true to what you're saying and stay true to what the dishes are. And basically stay true to yourself. Yeah. So, I think the grades evolved a lot. I think that we are a Port City Southern town and we have the ability to play with a lot of different ingredients and use a a variety of techniques from around the world because a lot of those people have come to these shores and left us with some of those techniques. So I'm very lucky because that has a a direct relationship to how I grew up in New York and the different cultures that I was exposed to as a child. So it's kind of cool to be in a city that has accepted a lot of those things and be able to cook that food with the perspective of a northerner
0: in the South. So it's kind of cool to be able to do that. I definitely think that when I heard about the food at the Gray it took me to part of my history. My great-grandmother migrated from Mississippi to Michigan, and my grandmother in turn mostly grew up in Detroit, and the food that she cooked was definitely like the reflection of the influence of Southern food from her mother, but also this kind of European-slash-mostly-Irish food influence that happens in the Midwest. You know, like I I laugh all the time about how I grew up eating corned beef and cabbage and potatoes as regularly as people in the South have Southern classics. The flavor profile was definitely more Southern, you know, and like succotash the way my grandmother would make it. And, you know, so I think when I was watching Chef's Table and I was Looking at the things on the menu, I think that was I, literally the part that made me the most emotional because I was like, this is somebody who gets me. Mm-hmm. I could go in this place and eat this food and feel completely connected to it. You know, when you have that northern, southern influence in your life, sometimes it's very hard to translate that on a plate. But you talked about knowing yourself and being able to incorporate that into the food that you make. I want to talk about a couple of things, things that really, really touch my soul. <laughs> the flying grits. Yeah.
1: I'm excited to tell you about that.
0: So I just got a new sous chef. He
1: came in probably in September and we were writing our New Year's Eve menu. And I love to do tasting menus. I just think they're fun. So we was planning our New Year's Eve menu and we were doing a course and I was like, all right, let's do something with grits. And we were focused on like the staple of the grits, like a pantry staple. And I thought about, you know, liver and grits. And I thought about how that is such a Southern staple. Like it's Mm. something that um, (laughs) people crave here. It's just an old timey kind of breakfast thing. And we served it on the menu at the grave. The first menu when we opened, we had beef liver and polenta. So anyway, I was like, as a throwback to that, Since it's New Year's Eve, let's do foie, right? Let's do Mm -hmm. a foie gras with grits and we can do sort of like an onion gravy. Oh, I'm so hungry right now. (laughs) We did a red wine onion gravy with seared foie and grits. And we sold our tasting menu for New Year's Eve. And then we sold out of the lobe of foie that we had. And then we just kind of took it off the menu. And... People came back and were like, you need to put that back on the menu. And so we ended up putting it back on the menu and we ran it for like two years. But the reason why I bring up my sous chef is because he was kind of looking at me like I was crazy. I was like, no, I'm telling you, like liver and grits is a thing. This is really cool. Like I love totally. It's totally holiday season. Like it totally makes sense because if you're in Paris, you eat foie during the holidays and the first time i ever had seared foie was in paris i was like this is what we're going to do and so it was just kind of fun and light and it turned out to be kind of like me on a plate like there's this sophistication and exposure to different cultures and different ingredients that i never really expected to have but at the end of the day i really just want to eat a bowl of grits <laughs>
0: Word. That's a word. We can end the podcast with that line right there. <laughs> just give me a bowl of grits and we're done. We're
1: done. It's a humble sort of um
0: a journey I've been on. I can imagine. Oh, it just made me remember how my grandmother used to fry liver with onions. Mm. Oh god. So good. The good old days. Talk about the good old days. <laughs> Talking about the good old days. Let's talk about thrills. When I was growing up, Our thing was um, pickles in a bag. And put Kool-Aid in there? Yes, a little Kool-Aid in the pickles. Um, So when I saw thrills, I was like, yes, oh, to the childhood. I think when you grew up in the 80s, you know, 90s, there's always some one thing like that, you know? Yeah. So is thrills still a thing? Yeah. So
1: basically the thrill lady was a woman who lived in the neighborhoods. And it started here, which I didn't realize it became a thing in like the 70s. Mm. And these women would sell these popsicles out of their houses and some of them had candy too. Some of them would sell candy and some of them would sell candy and chips and stuff like that. But most of them sell thrills, just Mm -hmm. thrills. So I lived in a predominantly black neighborhood when we lived in um, Savannah and I actually bought a house about maybe eight blocks away from where I grew up or where I lived here. And so we would play and then we would take our dimes and quarters and we would go get a thrill and we would sit on the porch and we would have that. So that would be sort of like our afternoon delight. And we were almost a little too young to go to the store by ourselves, but we weren't too young to go to the thrill ladies house. So that's kind of why the thrill ladies are attractive because you know, that like you're literally catering to like this small demographic, right? Sure. This demographic of kids who can't really go on the busy street, but can play <laughs> on their big wheels or skate in the neighborhood, but they can't go on like Waters Avenue, right? Sure. So it's like, all right, we'll go to Thrill Lady's house and we'll get a thrill. They got them down to a science. When I was younger, I remember it being very simple, like sugar, Kool-Aid, Sometimes you would have fruit juice. There would be all kinds of colors, lime green and cherry and grape and orange and all that stuff. Sometimes they would have fruit cocktail in it. But um, it was just something that I remembered so fondly when I was here because it was just so specific to here. And when I went to New York, they didn't have anything like that. In New York, you have the ice cream truck, right? And you have ice cream trucks here, but... You really just have like the thrill ladies and the kids running around. So the thrills ladies, you know, they're starting to die down a little bit. You don't see as many of them, but um, hopefully
0: there will be something that won't completely go away. It's living on at the gray and that's pretty important. I mean, and also that's a story about Black economics, right? Like how, you know, in our communities, we found ways to cater to our communities, even if it were just the children who couldn't go on Water Street. Because I know I could not leave off the block. I'd go from corner to corner. Fortunately, we had a store on the corner and that worked out. But like, you know, the penny candy lady sold out the side door of her house from the driveway, you know, and that was... I'm sure it's not sustainable to sell candy to kids for five cents in the 80s, but it was teaching us. Those were the first entrepreneurs we saw. Mm -hmm. It definitely inspired a lot of us in a lot of ways. Like we never forget the penny candy ladies.
1: No, for sure. Right. And I like the way you tie that back because it definitely is about. In exchange, right, like keeping that dollar in the community, even if it's you know takes twenty of us to make a dollar, it keeps it in the community. And we were loyal, right? We were there every day. We knew what door to knock on. We were taught manners. We had to be respectful because we were going to someone's house. Mm -hmm. It was a great time, and we lived here until I was ten. You know, I turned eleven. The summer we left. I was a child. So it's like I couldn't go far, but I knew that I could trust this person. We all kind of trusted these people. You sit on the porch and play Old Maid, and it was fun.
2: A Moment in the Walk In.
0: Okay, Mashama. So this is the part of the podcast that we call A Moment in the Walk In. This is when one of our listeners writes in a letter to our guest for advice. And we ask that you as the guests give them the best advice you can possibly give on the matter. Are you ready to hear the letter to you? Yes, ma'am. All right, great. So this letter is from Kay who lives in Boston. She says, hi, Mashama. I'm on the cusp of finishing my culinary education. This is my second career and my parents and family think I'm crazy. They're just extremely unsupportive especially considering that we're in the midst of a pandemic. How can I get them to understand that this is my passion and to be more supportive? Mm.
1: Oh God, that sounds so familiar. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what I went through. I had to even convince my family that I like cooking. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The best thing that they could do is um, show up, do the work Bring them into what you're doing. Invite them to a restaurant that you're working at. Cook dinner for them. Just kind of bombard them with what you're doing. And that's kind of what I did. So if I learned how to make something, I would bring it over to my parents' house and I would make it for them. When I learned how to make macaroons, I would bring it to them and I would say, hey, this is what I learned how to do and and this is why it's special and this is why it's interesting. Or I would invite them to the restaurant and have them eat lunch and I would pay for it. Or I would watch something on TV with them that was food related. Showing them what's driving your passion is a good way for to gain support. From them. And I think that the more you do that, the more excited they will be because they'll start to see what you see in it. It's hard for them to see it, know it because they don't see it. It's hard for them to understand it because they don't see why it's so important. They just see the hard work around it. But Mm -hmm. once you start to show them, physically show them and feed them with the passion that you have for it, they start to win over. And if you don't convince them, so what? You'll show them a few years from now when you're like, winning awards and
0: making bank and running, you know your restaurant in Savannah being awesome at the right. mm-hmm. I showed them. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so, you know, once you start
1: to become successful at it, then they'll start to relax. But it's coming from a place of love and concern, but you just have to pull them into why you're so passionate about it. The One thing that I realized that I needed throughout this whole thing was and that was most important to me was that support system, because not having a support system, being a black woman in the industry, I needed someone that I could vent to. I needed someone to not tell me if I was being weak or lame just to kind of support the decision that I had to make or not making as much money or not being on the station that I wanted to be on or being yelled at by the chef. Like you need someone to kind of go through this journey with. So for me, it was my cousin who's like your number one fan, regardless of what you do, like that's the person you want to kind of bring over to your side first and everybody else will follow.
0: All right. You heard it. (laughs) Mashama says stick to it. No matter what, find a support system. And bring people in, you know, bring your family in. That's great advice, Mashama. Thanks for that. Speaking of the buy-in, and I'm sure you have a lot of buy-in now that you are a world-famous chef. How do you feel about, like, fame and being so Mm well-known? I, fangirl, and I know you, you know, (laughs) I can imagine how people who don't know you really feel about you, but... You're very low-key on social media. You do what's necessary for work. I never see you doing anything unnecessary. I feel like you're intentional, but like, how do you feel about being so famous? You're like our queen. And that is a quote. I didn't make that up. Kia Damone referred to you as our queen, and I agreed, and I think everyone else did too. But how does that make you feel to be our queen?
1: It fills me with pride, and it helps validate my experience, quite honestly, because I kind of often feel like I don't do enough and I should be doing more and social media. I'm just lazy. Like I wish that I had (laughs) the energy. I'm like, how do you even like, who is helping you with this? But for me, I'm like, I just wish that I had the energy to stay as focused on that as I should be. Because I think there are a lot of moments in my life that if I shared them, people would be happy to see that like when I was telling you a little early before we started recording like I kind of did like a refrigerator dinner and I was not that happy with it the first night because it was like piping hot and it didn't rest and then the next day I was like oh my god I'm an amazing chef so <laughs> you are you are yeah I was like cook that I cook
0: that so I guess what was the question again? <laughs> How do you feel about being famous? Uh, I feel. And so loved and received. How does that make I you feel? I feel uncomfortable, but I want
1: to get more comfortable with it because it's an honor and a privilege and I'm humbled by it. But I, I feel uncomfortable. I feel like I'm still growing and learning. But I also, in the midst of this pandemic, understand that nobody's perfect and I don't have to be perfect. And not that I've wanted to be perfect before, but maybe I did. And maybe that's why I'm so low key, because I just want to show perfection. But I also understand that that's not real. And the more that I become comfortable with those uncomfortable, imperfect moments, the closer I am become with my team just about like exposure and like vulnerability and like making mistakes in front of people and laughing at them and being okay with them. And before it was very much like, we can't make any mistakes. We can't make any mistakes. We have to be the best. We have to improve. We can't make any mistakes. And that's not me. And so I think as I'm becoming more comfortable with making mistakes and growing and learning from those mistakes, I think that I'm becoming more comfortable with the position that I've earned, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I think I feel all the feels, but I'm, I'm humble. I'm humble by it for sure.
0: Well, we're going to love you no matter what, no matter what mistakes you make, because even your mistake makes other people's mistakes look A little shaky, right? So don't worry about that. We wanna see more. And I think you're right, the pandemic has really put humanity in in humanity's perspective. We're all vulnerable. We there is no guaranteed way not to have something take us down or fail. Like we're all susceptible to life happening, you know? And I'm so glad that it has happened for you in the way that it has. You are definitely our hero, our Shiro. And Thank you, Mashama. It's been so great talking to you today and learning so much more about each other. I'm finding this is the best way to like deepen my friendships with my friends.
1: I love that. Thank you so much, Al. This has been wonderful.
0: Thank you. I appreciate that. And thank you for being transparent and open and telling us about how you have really forged a way for all of us and continuing to do so. Thanks so much. You're welcome. If you haven't already, be sure to check out Mashama's episode in season six of Chef's Table on Netflix. It's beautiful and evocative and inspiring, and it'll make you hungry for foie and grits. And if you still can't get enough of Mashama, and I certainly understand the feeling, then you can pre-order her new book about the story of opening the gray. It's called Black, White, and the Gray, the story of an unexpected friendship and a beloved restaurant. It's coming out in January 2021. If you want a moment in the walk-in, send us your questions. You can email us at walk-in at americastestkitchen.com. You can send anything you need advice on, from the personal to the professional and everything in between. I'll only use your first name on the show for privacy. That's walk-in at americastestkitchen.com. One more quick thing. If you like The Walk-in and you want more of these real, raw, unfiltered stories and conversations about the food world, please be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And while you're there, why not tell us how you feel? Leave us a rating or write us a review. It really helps other people find the show.
2: The Walk-in is created and hosted by my daughter, Elle Simone Scott. Today's show was produced by Caitlin Kelleher. Our producers include Hen Margolis, Caroline Rickard, and Sarah Joyner. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Our theme music was composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Nina Gallant shot the cover art. Olivia Sheldon and Daniela Barrera brought the design. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Ivana Strahan is our intern. Jack Bishop is the chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Blue Shield California, New Coop, Room & Board, Escoffier, Samuel Adams, Berkshire Bank, and Valley Fig Growers. The Walk-In is a production of America's Test Kitchen.
0: If you love The Walk-In, then I have a treat for you. We've just launched a companion video series on YouTube. We take snippets from my conversations here on the podcast and animate them with beautiful collages full of photography and custom artwork from some of the flyest up-and-coming artists. It's hard to describe, but you've got to check it out for yourself. Time to get those eyeballs engaged. There's a link in the show notes.